So guys, um, you know, we are in the process right now of electing one of the most powerful offices in the United States. And, um, you know, I'm sure uh, as most of you have voted today, you know, tonight we're going to be looking at uh, probably one of the most powerful individuals um, during the Egyptian um, time period. And we're going to be looking at uh, Moses as uh, he was sitting there staring at a burning bush. And so we're going to look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 22 tonight of, um, of Moses and the burning bush. Now, as we've already talked about, you know, and started to talk about that, Moses is probably one of the most towering figures uh, in all of history. He shepherded 6 million former slaves through 40 years in the wilderness to freedom. He founded a nation that has endured dispersion, persecution, and lasted for more than 3,000 years. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, have shaped Western civilization and formed a basis for our ethics, law, and human dignity. Now, Moses was an intimate of God. At the end of his life, it was said of him in Deuteronomy 34.10 that no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He drank deeply from the depths of the presence of God. And yet Moses' story in Exodus 3 is a story of a man at a low and a broken place. As much as we remember his accomplishment, accomplishments, we should also meet him where he's at in his failures. So let's uh, read Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will, not turn aside, I will turn, now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here, am I, here I am. And then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the Lord God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because they're taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, 
Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God, your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, and you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you'll say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." Now, if you guys remember, some of us were probably young, but during the recession of the late 70s when the aerospace industry took a large hit in Southern California, many people who had, had very high positions of authority in, in companies, they were making a very, very good living. Um, it was boom time, and then suddenly the bottom drops out, and they find themselves out of work. I remember because I remember my dad during this period. And many of you guys probably remember it as well. Some of them, just to earn an income, um, while they looked for better employment, took jobs like uh, fast food, delivering papers, car salesmen. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but it wasn't what they were accustomed to. It wasn't what they were used to. And that's where Moses is at this point in the narrative in chapter 3. Now, he goes in chapter 2 from being adopted into the house of Pharaoh, raised in the culture and science of the world's most premier power at that time, to tending sheep. Genesis 46 tells us that the shepherds were considered an abomination to the Egyptians. So in our modern time, you know, Moses goes from being, say, like the vice president of Microsoft to a counter worker like Taco Bell. Okay. Now, these weren't even his sheep that he was tending and, and, uh, and taking care of. They were his father-in-laws. Now, Moses at this time was also 80 years old. And we know that he's, he was 80 years old because in Acts 7.23, it says he was 40 when he killed the Egyptian and had to flee. And, 34, and Deuteronomy 34.7 tells us that he was 120 when he died. And he led the children of Israel for 40 years after his call by God. So that makes him just about 80 years old at this point. That's no spring chicken. I don't see anybody here that's 80 years old, unless you're high. Ron's kind of like, eh. <laughs> but I mean, if you think about it, you know, imagine yourself and God calls you at 80 years old 
you know, at the point of 80 years old, you're thinking about retirement, right? You're not thinking about embarking on your career and embarking on your, embarking on your call. And, you know, so Moses was 80. And um, Matthew Henry says this about Moses. He says, the years of Moses' life are remarkably divided into three 40s, okay, three 40-year periods. The first 40 years he was spent as a prince in Pharaoh's court. The second, a shepherd in Midian, and the third, a king in Jeshurun. So for 40 years, Moses tended the flock of his father-in-law. And if you look at it, these were really years of training. Uh, They were years years of preparation. Though I'm sure for Moses, and probably for us, it would be hard to see it that way. 40 years of tending sheep, no direction, and you're just like, what am I doing? You know, some of you guys have been on a job for a long time, and hopefully you don't feel like Moses, but this is where, this is where Moses is. He's 40 years. Um, he didn't see it as training. But God was teaching Moses the principles of true leadership. And there was no better school than the life of a shepherd and no better classroom than the desert. Now, the first 40 years of his life had spent in the schools of Egypt, living in the lap of luxury. It's kind of like, you guys remember that uh, TV program, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? That's what Moses, right? He had everything. He was second in command. It's kind of like our, our vice president. Something happens to the president, the vice president takes over and becomes the most powerful person in this country. And this is, what, this is who Moses is. But there was a divine purpose on Moses' life. He was destined to be the leader of God's people, even though he didn't know it and he didn't see it. Having been raised in the palace and having seen the world's idea of what it meant to lead, he ventured to deliver his fellow Hebrews with his own wisdom and his own strength. In Acts 7, 20 to 29, Stephen was rehearsing the history of the nation of Israel and spoke of Moses. And he said this, at the time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But then he was set out. Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in the words and deeds. And now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down or killed the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did this, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And then at his saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. So you see, Moses thought that by rescuing this fellow Hebrew, that it would be understood, that they would, you know, kind of take him in, so to speak. But, you know, that that was a rude awakening for him. They didn't see him the way that he thought they were going to see him. Moses was indeed destined to deliver his people from bondage, but as... Many times in our own lives, it's just not time yet. God says it's not not time. It's not yet. No. Wait. And Moses' ears weren't tuned to God. And remember, Moses didn't know who God was, really. So he needed to come to a place of dependence on God 
and the route was through Midian, and 40 years of tending flock for his father-in-law. Now, verse 1 also goes and says, And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, if you guys have read this before, I mean, like me, I mean, I've always wondered, what does the back of the desert mean? I mean, there's no good place in the desert. I'm sorry if some of you guys live in the desert, but, you know, for, for, many, of the, for many of the people, it's just, you know, there's no trees. There's nothing really nice to look at. I mean, unless you're into that kind of thing, which is okay. But it's the back side of the desert. In other words, it's implying it's like it's out there, you know. And the Hebrews, here's an interesting fact. The Hebrews had a, a way of dividing the points of a compass, okay. That if east is before a person, in other words, this is before a person, the west is then behind him, the south would be to the right, and the north would be to the left, okay? Now, the reason this is important is because the east was always considered a place of exile. You know, when Adam was kicked out of the garden, it was to the east, right, that the cherub was placed to do what? To guard against reentry. When the tabernacle was erected, cherubim were woven into the veil, which then pointed east, symbolizing a restricted access into the Holy of Holies. And then when Moses died, he was buried east of Canaan as punishment for his transgression. And then when Israel was exiled to Babylon, it was east. Now, the east wind is used many times in Scripture as a harsh and a destroying concept. And this is seen, for example, in, in Jeremiah eighteen seventeen, where it says, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy, and I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. So the desert is a, it's a tough place. It's dry. It's a weird place. And for Moses, it was a dramatic fall from where he was coming from, a very cosmopolitan surrounding uh, of the Egyptians' uh, you know, capital and, uh, and court. But here he is, and he's not even in the nice part of the desert. Okay, um, I have friends that live in Phoenix, and they tell me there's nice parts of Phoenix. But every time I visit, it just kind of looks the same to me, right? So, sorry, I'm just picking on the desert. So, but um, you know, he wasn't enjoying an oasis. There wasn't, you know, cool spots in this wilderness. I mean, you got to think about this. You know, Moses, you know, is going through a desert, no direction. It's hot. Not sure how much water he had, and he's got all these sheep that he's trying to herd, and he's trying to find places for them to cool down, to rest, to get watered, and to eat. Not a really fun existence. But he had to keep moving. He had to keep the flock moving so that they would continue to, uh, to eat. Now, it may seem to us that God is very distant because of the dryness of Moses' circumstance, but God was there all along. He was waiting for the opportune time, just like he does with us. You know, we all have desert times, times when God doesn't seem nowhere. You guys ever experience that? You call out to him and he's just nowhere. But I think what we need to do is we need to change the spelling of nowhere to now here. And we're going to see that Moses is taken from a place of nowhere to God is now here with him. Also in verse 1, it says, And he led the flock back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, Horeb is the same area as, uh, as Sinai. And this will be the place where 
God manifests his glory. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments, where Moses will spend 40 days in the Lord's presence. And the names used may be the same place, but are used for different reasons. Horeb means arid or desert, which interestingly is similar to Zion, the mountain of God, which is in one sense also means dry place. So mountain of God in Hebrew is translated Elhar Ha Elohim, to mountain the God. The definite article is before God, not mountain. And this is going to be this is going to show that there's something very specific and important as to why this is. Now, if it was the mountain of God, it would have said Har Elohim, such as in Psalm sixty-eight fifteen. Rather, it is the mountain of the God, and is an intent, it is intended to show us that the flock that Moses is herding is being led specifically to a location to worship the one true God. Now, later in chapter 4, we'll be told that Moses returns to Jethro, but the flock is not mentioned. So this is the first and really the only time that the flock is mentioned. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm sure there's a word study in there about this, but um, just not enough time. Now, verse 2 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire. But the bush was not consumed, and then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Now, it was a known fact at that time that desert lightning storms and nomadic shepherds uh, often kindled the bushes uh, in the desert. So, excuse me, so it wasn't really that uncommon of a sight, okay? But for Moses, it became a very interesting phenomenon. And so the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire. And the angel is called both Jehovah and Elohim. So it's safe to conclude that this was the second person of the Trinity who appeared to Moses. This is none other than Jesus Christ himself. In other places in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is clearly a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And we see this in Genesis 16, Judges 2, 6, and 13. So here we have the person of Jesus Christ linked to the name of Yahweh, or as it has sometimes been translated, Jehovah, in John 1.18 and 1 Timothy 6.16. So Jesus is Jehovah. And I hate to burst the bubble of the, you know, watchtower Jehovah Witnesses, but clearly this says that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, right? So anyway, don't get me started on that. So the word for flame here is Labah and is used only this once in the Bible. However, it comes from the word Lababa, not Labamba, Lababa. <laughs> Just wanted to see if you guys were awake. So Lahaba, which is a common word for flame, and it also means blade. So when you and I look at flames of fire, um, it appears like the blades of a sword, Right. And so these two concepts are merging into one. And so you have the voice of the Lord is equated to flames of fire in Psalm 29. And then you have the tongue is equated to a sword in Revelation 19. And so we see that these two concepts kind of come together. And we've got to get a picture now of what Moses started to see. Okay. Now also in verse 2 we see the phrase midst of the bush. And the word for bush here. In Hebrew is sene, and it is only used six times in the Bible. It means thorny. And five of those times are right here in Exodus 3, and the last time it's ever used is in Deuteronomy 33, when referring to the Lord who dwelt in this bush. 
So almost all the occurrences have to do with this, uh, this occurrence. Now, the New Testament refers to the bush four times, twice by Jesus and twice by Stephen. And some commentators speculate that the thorny bush was the basis, the, the basis for the name Sinai may be the very type of bush that was used for the crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head. Now, all speculation, but it's just something kind of to think about. Now, the six times it's used in the Old Testament, some have speculated it could be tied to the biblical meaning of the number six. And you guys probably know, been here long enough with Xavier, he's taken us through the study of, uh, of numbers. And so the number, which, the number six actually relates to the number of man, right? And so therefore, it could be pointing to the person of Jesus in his manhood. As the Lord dwelt in the bush in the Old Testament, he wore it as a crown of thorns in the New Testament. So again, just speculation, but something to kind of think about. So also in verse 2, it says, So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire. Now, fire, particularly in a bush, would be visible from some distance. Um, I think I was talking to somebody here not too long ago, and they worked near a fertilizer plant, and it caught on fire. You know, certainly a bush would, in the desert, be able to show, you know, that it's burning and, and uh, you know, just like this fertilizer fire did. But um, in the Bible, fire has a dual meaning. It has a dual significance. It's something which destroys, and it's often used as a symbol of judgment and of wrath. However, fire also has the ability to do what? To purify, right? And it's often used this way, as well in scripture. In Malachi chapter 3, it is used in this dual way, speaking of the coming of the Lord in judgment and at the same time to, to purify. Malachi 3, 2 and 3 says, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So we see here that fire is also, you know, also a picture of the jealousy and the desire that God has for us. Guys, realize that God is absolutely, totally in, in love with us. He is a jealous God. Now, as guys, whenever we would go out with a woman that was jealous, it was kind of like an ugly thing, right? We don't have the concept of, of what a, a pure jealousy is, but that's that's what... That's what this, that's what's that's what's here is that God is extremely jealous for us, and so by His nature, He uses things to purify us. Uh, and fire is very symbolic of us going through tri fire, tri, uh, fiery trials and and difficulties in our life. So if we continue on in verse two, it says, "But the bush was not consumed, and it wasn't consumed because this is really a representation." Uh, of the work of the Lord. Israel's being prepared. Israel and Moses are being prepared uh, and purified, but they're not going to be consumed. And I think that um, sometimes, you know, as believers, we constantly are being purified by the Lord, by the circumstances in our life, by the trials in our life, by whatever is going on. And yet we're not consumed, but sometimes we don't, we don't acknowledge that. We don't say the Lord, you know, tell the Lord, hey, thank you for not consuming me. You know, he can be an all-consuming fire, right? But he doesn't. It's meant to purify us because as he comes closer to the time where he's going to come for us, 
He wants a pure church. He wants a pure heart. He wants pure intents. So I think that um, you know, as we go through these trials, just got to keep that in mind that uh, there's, it's a re- there's a reason for it. Now also in verse 3 it says, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So here we're given another indication that Moses is the author of this account. Rather than it being in his immediate area, whether it's in the direction he was going, whether it was right there where you're standing, he says, hey, you know, I'm going to turn aside. It, it's showing a, a very strong intent, an actual decision to kind of turn and move in that direction. Now, what made it stand out for Moses was that this bush, even though it was burning, wasn't burning out. Now, you guys have all seen something that burns, right? It, it disintegrates. Um, he's got to be freaked out at this point. He sees something that's not burning. He, maybe there's no smoke, you know, or there, maybe there is smoke. We don't really know. But he sees it, and he's just curious. He's astonished by this. So he goes, and he goes and checks it out. Now, the Hebrew for turn or turn aside is the word sir, and this word has a very strong intent and purpose in it. It says, if God is waiting for Moses to come to this mountain so that he can show him a sign, get his attention, and then start to have communion with him, start to talk with him, start to have fellowship with him, and develop a relationship with him. Now, God sees Moses' action and his response that he took time to turn aside. It was then that God spoke to him. Okay? It was then that God spoke to him. There in the bush, the Lord patiently waited for Moses, curiosity to take over, and then eventually did, and then God spoke to him. And verse 4 says, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. So God waited until Moses came near and was paying attention, then God spoke. And it's important that we come to Bible study whether it's tonight, Tuesday night, Sundays, you know, times with you know, devotionals at home, where we're reading the Word, where if we're married, we're spending time in the Word with our wives, but that we come with an expected and a ready heart, um, that we come with a mind that's looking to receive, you know, from the Lord. Because God is waiting patiently for us. He waited patiently for us tonight. As we were going through worship songs, He was preparing our hearts so that, we were open. So here Moses is confronted with the miracle in the burning bush, but encountering the miracle wasn't going to change Moses. I mean, how many times have we had family, friends, or whatever had seen a miracle and didn't really change their mind? It wasn't until actually God spoke to him and God grabbed hold of his heart. You know, people get excited about miracles and signs and wonders and stuff like that, and, and there's nothing wrong with it, but the miraculous is is only there to do what? It's meant to point us to the source of the miracle. And God desires to speak to us and fellowship with us, and that's what's going to bring the real change in us, just like in Moses. Now in verse 4, it also says, it also said, um, and he also said, Moses, Moses. Now, calling, it, calling out a name uh, or a word twice is a way of showing emphasis. And when Jesus wanted to emphasize his words, he would say, Amen or may, Amen, or as we also have heard, Verily, verily, right? It's a, it's a form of emphasis. Now, when God calls out to his people for a matter of importance, he will call out their name twice. Now, I've never heard him call out my name twice. I probably wouldn't be living if I did. But, you know, here he is. He's calling out these people's names twice. 
And this happens to be the third time in Scripture that God has fondly and purposely called out to a man in this way. Now, the first time, if you guys recall, was in Genesis 22, when the angel of the Lord called to the man of faith. In 22.11 says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And the second time was in Genesis 46, when God called out to the man of family. And then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And now in this same climatic and in emphatic fashion, God is calling out the name of the man of flock of the flock, Moses, Moses. Verse four also says, and he said, here am I, or here I am. Now, when the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham, his immediate, immediate response was, here I am. When he called out to Jacob, his response was the same, here I am. And now the same powerful, loving voice calls to Moses' ears, and his immediate response is, here I am. So you can see that there's a transformation happening in Moses. From this man who was full of pride, this man that was on top of the world, literally, and now he's answering God's voice. You know, when the Lord calls you and I, you know, in the deep recesses of our heart and our soul, or through his word, we need to respond like these great men did. Lord, here, I'm, here I am. Verse 5 says, Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now Moses was probably curious about the fire, whether it was real or not. Um, and the welcoming voice which called him to certainly seemed to be no threat to him. It seemed to kind of know him personally. So must be a friend. So curiously, feeling welcome, Moses kind of said, hey, I'm going to go check this out. And as he stepped forward, not realizing that there was a distance that God demanded between him and this great sight that he was witnessing. And when he hears, and I'm paraphrasing this, when he hears, don't take one more step, Moses. I mean, I'm sure it stunned him. And it says, take your sandals off your feet. So not only was distance required, but now he's instructed to remove his sandals. There's much that we can learn about shoes in the Bible, and uh, we don't have time to go through and understand shoes, but there is a use for them. Um, I'm glad somebody got that joke. Thank you. Um, so there is good use for them, their removal, and there's also some symbolism in the Bible related to them, even though they're only mentioned 35 times. Now, in this command, God, in essence, is saying to Moses, resign yourself, surrender yourself to me, Moses. Now, whether made by him or by someone else, Moses' shoes were the work of man's hands. And the footprints of Moses were created by God, therefore implying that God, God had mastery over him. So the symbolism is interesting. And there's also... A, uh, a uniting of the created foot with the dust from which Moses, man, or you and I were created. So nothing of human origin would be considered acceptable in the presence of such a holy place. And we see this later in Exodus 20, which says, And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of, of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. God made the stones, not man. 
And if man's efforts are placed along God's holiness, only defilement can take place. God calls, God sanctifies, and then God glorifies. So the process of holiness is of and by God and only God. Now, only twice in the Bible is someone told to take off their shoes because the ground is holy. This is the first time, and the second time is in Joshua. Let's, uh, let's turn to Joshua five thirteen and 15. And it says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man stood opposite with him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So when we have two similar occurrences that are noted in the Bible, we need to pay attention. And in the case of these two accounts, the first is before Israel is delivered from bondage. The second account is after they are in the promised land. One is on the outside of Canaan, one is, on the, one is in Canaan. And so you can see that there's, there's a rhyme and there's a reason. There's a reason why it's mentioned here. So look at verse 5 as we continue on. The phrase, for the place where you stand is holy ground. So the word for holy here is Kadesh. And this is the first time it's used in the Bible, and so far over 2,500 years of human history have been recorded, and yet this is the first mention of anything connected to God's holiness since the creation of man. Now, the holiness of God is being introduced now because Moses will become the human mediator of God's law for his people. He's being taught a lesson in God's holiness. That's what this is all about. Moses is still you know, used to people looking up to him. Even though he's been broken, he still has that edge on him. But God is teaching him holiness. God is teaching him respect and to not overstep those bounds. And we'll see that, um, that God will continue to work on Moses in this fashion. Now, now, Moses' final resting place will be outside of the land of promise because he will fail to take it to heart during a brief moment of anger. In other words, because he got angry, he forgot who he was dealing with. He forgot that God is to be respected. God is holy. And Moses, he misrepresented God. Do you remember that story? He struck the rock, misrepresented, misrep uh, misrepresented God. And so, you know, he was, uh, his final rest place is outside the land of uh, promise or the promised land. Now, Moses stands on holy ground or literally the ground of holiness for the first time. And it's ground which has been rendered holy just by the sheer presence of God being there. Now, this is good, guys, this is good for us to remember um, as we conduct our affairs in his presence while we're at work, you know, in our marriages at home, um, when we're with friends or even when we're alone. We are always in the presence of the Lord and we should walk with him as if we were on holy ground. Now, look at verse six. He said, moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Jake, Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, the word father here is singular, indicating that he is identifying himself with the same God of Amram, Moses' father, but whom was also worshipped by the patriarchs before him. However, if we look at Acts 7, Stephen says in 
that he says it in the plural, and he's focusing on the patriarchs for the benefit of the council that he was talking to in Acts 7. So why would this be? Why would one be singular, one be plural? Well, because Stephen was addressing the Jews, but there's more than the Jews in God's plan. So Abraham as the father of Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac was the father of Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob was the father of the 12 patriarchs, as well as the adoptive father of Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim would become the fullness of the Gentiles, uh, as Jacob prophesied. And therefore, the entire scope of humanity is included in the words to Moses now. And so we see this in uh, Paul in Galatians 3 is saying this, saying we become sons of Abraham by faith, right? And yes, that's true, but he is also the God of the Hebrews, um, but he's also God of all creation. He's God of all mankind. And so whether Ishmael, Esau, Ephraim, whoever, whatever group of people, if they, if they call on Jesus Christ, they become sons of Abraham by faith and sons through adoption, right? So that's, that's what's happening. The pattern is starting to um, be set. Excuse me. <clears throat> the pattern is starting to be set. <clears throat> now look at also verse 6. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look upon God. Two commands were given to Moses. Do not draw near to this place. And what was the other one? Don't take your sandals off, right? I'm just checking to make sure you guys are with me here. Now, in an expression of dread, what does Moses do? He hides his face like you and I would, right? He hides his face from God's glory. He suddenly has an insight into God that he had never before contemplated. One which Jesus later explained to the Israels, Israelites, or I'm sorry, the leaders of Israel when he said in Luke chapter 20, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So when God reveals himself in, in these wondrous ways, the only thing that we can do is just hide our face. Elijah found this out on the same mountain years later, when he wrapped his face in a mantle, excuse me, when God called him. The Bible says that the seraphim of God, the burning ones, are said to hide their face before his presence. And when one truly comprehends the holiness of God, it is far above our five senses as human beings, and the only reaction to seeing is that of fear or, or godly reverence. Now, verse 6 also says he was afraid to look upon God. Now, Moses left the land of many gods in Egypt, and now he is found to be in the presence of God, the one true God, and his fear to look upon him. So, again, Moses is changing. Moses is starting to understand that this is the God. This is the one true God. And someday all flesh, guys, you know, we're going to come you know, before him for judgment. And on that day, those who are not covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be consumed by what their eyes will see. With what memory forever in their mind, they will be cast from God's presence for all eternity. It will eternally consume them. It will definitely destroy them. They will not be able to handle seeing God face to face for the first time. You know, many of us have lost loved ones and family members. And, uh, you know, I, I lost a wife years ago. And... The thought that always came to my mind was when they first see God, when they first see Jesus, 
What in the world? I mean, can you imagine what they're seeing? I can't fathom it. It just goes beyond what I can even imagine. In verse 7, it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrow, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and all the other ites. And now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So in chapter 2, we read that the children of Israel cried out because of this harsh treatment, this oppression uh, that they were having to endure and to live through. And here God says he heard their cry and is now moving to deliver them. Okay. Now, a phrase, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. Um, There's a lot of interesting things going on here, but um, in these few words, first, the Hebrew says, seeing I have seen. So God is seeing this continually. It's constantly in his vision, if you will, the oppression that the uh, children of Israel were going through. It's not like he noticed it all of a sudden. It's not like he said, oh, you know, that was a surprise. But he constantly saw it. And he wasn't, contrary to what people think, he wasn't inattentive to their situation. Now, the word for taskmasters is nagas, meaning to drive like an animal, a workman, a debtor, or an army. So the implication really here is um, to tax the people, to harass them, to tyrannize them to constantly be on top of them. Um, I thought it was interesting when I was looking this up that it had something to do with taxes. You know, as we're, you know, having um, elections and stuff like that, that's on the mind of a lot of people. But I mean, here, this was something that, you know, I hadn't even really thought about when I was looking at this, that they were also being taxed. They were slaves and then there was a lot being asked of them. So the concept crying out for deliverance is not an unusual thing in the Bible. But what I found interesting is that It never says that they cried to God. It just says that they cried out. Now, I'm sure that some of the cries were to God, but it says that they just cried out. So the takeaway, I guess, is that, you know, God took note of their oppression and their suffering. He also takes notice of our oppression and he takes notice of our suffering and the things that we're going through. And sometimes it doesn't feel like he's there, but he's not inattentive to our cries and our suffering. Now look at the phrase, for I know their sorrows. And the expression, I know their sorrows, implies understanding and comprehension, which includes feelings and compassion, and even a tender desire to help. And then 8 says, So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and a large land. So God tells Moses his plan to set the children of Israel free from their bondage. He's going to take them out of Egypt, and he's going to return them to the, the promised land. Now, 40 years earlier, Moses thought that he was going to deliver them, right? But he got rejected. His time had come. It wasn't, it wasn't the right time. God was saying, hey, not now. You're, you're kind of getting ahead of me here. Now, in reference to a good and a large land, the actual size of the land promised to Abraham is much larger than they possessed for most of their history. Only for a, view, a very brief time did they possess the entire land of promise. It includes All of Israel today, Gaza, the Golan Heights, through Syria, and all the way up to the Euphrates. And Deuteronomy 11.24 gives us a really good outline of that. 
So in all, it's about 450 miles long, um, and it varies from 60 to 120 miles wide, and it comprises about 50,000 square miles of land. So pretty decent-sized piece of uh, real estate. Now, verse says also, uh, it refers to a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is the first of 20 times this expression is used in the Bible. And the last time will be in Ezekiel 20, where it's also called the glory of all lands. A land flowing with milk and honey implies richness and fertility. Now, we all know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, but you know, milk comes from cows, and so it means that there will be abundance of pasture lands, right? Um, and honey comes from bees, which pollen into the flowers, and so really the implication is that you're going to have fruit trees. Um, there's going to be herbs and the flower. I mean, you get the picture that, that there's going to be something really good here, right? It's going to be fertile land, and it's going to be in abundance. Deuteronomy 8, 7 to 10 gives us a, a beautiful picture of the land. I'm not going to read it, but when you have a chance, um, you know, those three little verses really um, kind of give you a good picture of, of what is being described here. Now look at verse 9. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. Now, this verse is in the opposite order of verse 7, which began by saying, he had seen their oppression and heard their cry. Verse 9 begins with hearing their cry first. Now, the reason goes back to the previous chapter where it said in Exodus 2, verse 23, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Now, you can just imagine Moses was probably super excited hearing all of this that God was saying, hey, you know, I'm going to be there. I'm going to help you. Um, he's saying, yes, Lord, that's awesome. You know, you're going to deliver the people. They're not going to suffer anymore, so on and so forth, right? I can't see, I can't wait to see you work. Until God added verse 10, come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is probably thinking, say what? What do you mean? Whoa, 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 wait a second. Um, you were going to do that. But now God is saying, no, no, no. I'm going to be with you, but I'm going to send you. So the, Mo so the Lord calls Moses. He's been in Midian for 40 years. Okay. He has family, he has flocks. He has a life, which has probably been just routine at best, right? Now he's called, and he has to put that aside. He has to place his faith and his trust in God. For Moses, that means also that he's got to go back to Pharaoh. To the house where he was raised, to a family that would still remember him. And also remember what he had done. Which caused him to leave in the first place. So all this stuff has got to be going through his head. Now Moses left 40 years earlier after killing an Egyptian, as we mentioned previously, and that he was also rejected by his people, and he thought he was going to be delivered. So not only is he dealing with, okay, you know what, I got family there, they probably don't want to see me, I killed a guy, side note, and also, um, you know, I already tried doing this once. So you can already see the excuses just building up in Moses, right? Excuse after excuse after excuse, and we're going to see some of that account later. Now, we've also seen that others have, in the scriptures, that received similar calls Throughout scripture, you know, Amos, like Moses, also tended flocks and was called to prophesy to Israel. And Amos was told by the king to stop prophesying and basically said, what do you mean? You must be kidding. I'm not going to stop prophesying. 
And in his answer to him is in Amos 7, 14 and 15. It says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. And then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Amos went on to pronounce words of judgment to the king. And then years later, a group of men were taken off of a fishing boat and asked to speak out to the people, becoming fishers of men. So people are called all the time. It's a matter of whether they are going to respond, whether you and I are going to respond to whatever that that call is. And so when God calls us, how are we going to respond? We can think of every excuse why we shouldn't do it, right? We can throw up every excuse to the Lord, but all we need to do is just bow our will to him, trust him, and he will take care of it. It's just it's scary. It can be a little scary. So look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So notice Moses sees himself as disqualified to be deliverer of his people. He'd already tried and he'd already failed miserably. He committed a capital crime and he's got to be thinking, I've got a death sentence on my head in Egypt and God is asking me to go back. Now, Moses also asked her, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I is the very important phrase here. It's, it's very, very key because it shows that the self-confidence and strength of Moses in his flesh are gone or really starting to erode uh, quickly. Now look at verse 12. So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So to Moses, who am I? God says, I'll certainly be with you. Notice that God doesn't answer his question. It's kind of like he just... Ignores it. Moses was probably expecting an answer like, you know what, Moses, you're like the mighty Moses. You are the man. You are the powerful deliverer of your fellow Jews. You're the great redeemer of Israel. Nope. It's not what he got. God, God's reply to Moses wasn't to affirm Moses' identity uh, or his strength or anything like that. It was really to affirm God's presence and his power and that God would be with him. That was the point. Moses implies that he wasn't capable of the challenge that was set before him. We also try to pull a Moses with the Lord, don't we? Sometimes we try to tell him, hey, I'm not, I I, I can't do this. Um, Lord, who am I to get involved with the, uh, with the usher ministry? You know, who am I to get involved with, you know, the tape ministry? Who am I to get involved with the street witnessing ministry? We can think of any excuse. And the Lord answers and says, you're ready for service because I say you're ready. I know you better than you know yourself, right? So look at verse 12 and the phrase, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. It's God's standard operating procedure to give a sign which is future as a testimony of the truth revealed in the present. The sign is appeal to faith. We walk by faith, not by sight, right? So we've seen in other times in the Bible, the sign was given to Eli, the high priest of Israel in 1 Samuel 1, another to King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19. 
And one of the most famous signs was given by the Lord to the house of David in Isaiah 7, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 7.14. Now the phrase, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Um, it says, and uh, sign, let's see here, I lost my place here, guys, sorry about that. Yeah, serve a God on this mountain. Okay, so a sign is always going to appeal to uh, to faith. And in faith, it provides, in faith, we are provided every assurance that if God is calling us, that he is going to do it for us. He is going to enable us, right? We've learned this consistently being here at uh, Calvary Chapel. And so understanding this, we have to ask ourselves a simple question, a simple question. What sign um, do we have that's comparable to the one that Moses was given? What is Moses really relying on here? He's really relying on, on God's word, right? Well, that's what we have. You know, Moses was given the word of God because God was speaking to him. Well, tonight the word of God is speaking to you, hopefully, um, as we read the word and as we listen to what the word of God says. So look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? And what shall I say to them? Now, at first, this might seem like an unusual question to ask, right? God has already identified himself as the God of their fathers. So why is Moses asking this? But, guys, there's a difference between a description and a name. You know, my friend Pete there can be an idiot, but his name is Pete, right? I'm just kidding, Pete. <laughs> But I mean, you get the sense, right? It's a description versus a name. And so in Genesis, there were many descriptive titles that were used. Um, there's the general title El or Elohim, which would be God of creation. Um, there's the title El Shaddai, the powerful one, the one who provides blessing and fruitfulness. There's Jehovah, the existent one. So there's a lot of titles. There's a lot of descriptions. Um, but are they his name? And if so, what is being asked here? So really what Moses is asking is, what is the name that I use when I tell them that the promises to our fathers are to be confirmed? He wanted some assurance that when he went to them, that they would believe that he had been sent by God. Because he had, remember, he had already been here before and failed, so he's a little gun shy. Okay. Now to better understand this, think of, the, the pantheon and Greek gods. You guys remember in school we kind of had to be, you know, taught you know, Greek mythology and all that kind of stuff. So they had a lot of gods like Apollo, Athena, you know, Hermes, Poseidon, Zeus, so on and so forth, right? Um, so if a person was going to go to sea, the god that they would pray to would be Poseidon, right? So Moses is looking for help here to identify to the children of Israel, okay, what do I tell them? What God are you? You know, he understands that there's one true God, but he's still kind of, if you want to call it like a baby Christian, he's kind of still trying to figure out, you know, it's kind of like us when we were newly born again. I mean, we didn't know Christianese. We didn't understand. Hey, bless you, brother, you know, or whatever. Right. So let's look at verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
This is where we get the name Yahweh. It means literally the one who is and carries the idea of timeless self-existence. It speaks of imminent presence and eternal power. I am who I am reveals the very nature of God and yet more is left unknown than we could ever know about I am who I am. Now described in Revelation 4 are four living creatures which are the very throne of God and they see him continually and yet never cease and never stop in glorifying him. In Revelation 4 it says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal in the midst of the throne and around the throne there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now these four creatures, full of eyes in the front and the back, Never rest day and night as they proclaim words of astonishment. Holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord God Almighty, the self-existent one, the one who is and who is to come. From moment to moment, from all eternity, something new is being revealed to these creatures every single moment. And in their astonishment and the ceaseless, endless glory which emanates from Jesus himself... They can do nothing but proclaim his surprising greatness. So, I am who I am. It was the name that God had been known by the, by the patriarchs. It is God's covenant name. Now that he's moving to fulfill an important part of the covenant made with Abraham, he restores the use of his name to the people of the covenant. And moving on in verse 14 says, And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The name I am or its form Jehovah implies an absolute, absolute uniqueness. There's nothing or no other like him. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. The name also implies eternality. He is outside of time, having created it. Even though he interacts with it, it has no effect on him. He's outside of time. This is seen in Jesus' words in John 8 to the leaders of Israel. Your father Abraham did rejoice to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was what? I am. So we're getting a sense of just the majesty, the power, the utter supremacy of God himself. And Moses is interacting with him. Now look at verse 15. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, sent me to you. This is the name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Now, what name, what memorial did God say was to commemorate him forever and to all generations? It was the name what? Yahweh, right? Who is the God of 
Who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So, it's not Allah. It's not the God of Ishmael, right? Today, Islam attempts to claim to be the original religion of God. The God of the Quran and the Bible. And Muslims claim Adam was the first Muslim. And that Abraham and Moses were Muslims as well. They believe Jews and Christians corrupted the revelation of God, which Muhammad restored. So, obviously, they don't remember who this memorial was supposed to be to, right? It says Yahweh. It doesn't say Allah. Anyway, so look at 16. So go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of Hebrews... Of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our Lord or to our God. Now, Moses is given his first set of instructions, and we saw that in verses um, first and, sorry, in verses 9 and 10, he was given his call and the intent of that call. So, you know, if we look closely at verse 16, what we're going to see is that God's words immediately are now starting to place Moses in a position of leadership for the children of Israel. Okay? Little by little, God is taking Moses through a leadership course. He's going through leadership training, and now God is saying, okay, you know what? Now you're ready. Okay? And that's what we see here in verse 16. And if you look closely, that uh, is also implied in the task that God gives him. He said he's told to go and gather the elders of Israel together, the leaders of the individual tribes. And notice that Moses was also told what to say to the people. So, you know, God has given him the blueprint. God is telling him, hey, I'm empowering you. God is telling him, okay, now you're ready. And oh, by the way, now that you're ready, um, I'm going to tell you what to say. Okay, so everything where God guides, he provides, right? And this is what we're seeing here. Now, if we continue on 16, you know, um, it says, The Lord God of fathers, uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Now, in Genesis 50, the final words of the life of Joseph were recorded, which then closed out the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 50, 25, we see, then, we see this. Then, Gen- then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So it's been 144 years since these words were spoken by Joseph. And to put things into perspective, 144 years to us would put us at about 1872. Now, I know maybe one or two of you might have been alive at that time, but that's a long time, right? 1872, it's 144 years. Now, I understand this is the even election, so let me just give you a couple of fun facts to kind of go along with that. In 1872... Ulysses S. Grant was the president of the United States. In 1872, Victoria Woodall 
becomes the first woman nominated for the President of the United States. I bet you guys thought it was Hillary, right? And then Calvin Coolidge, the 30th President of the United States, died in 1872. Okay, so 144 years uh, since the words of Joseph have been spoken. And what seems so distant to us is, is just what? But a breath to God. I mean, it's just a glimpse of an eye, of a blink of an eye, right? So the many years of trial and hardship were not overlooked. They weren't ignored by God. Instead, they were waiting their true fulfillment. He was waiting. God was patiently waiting for everything to be lined up according to his will and his purposes. Now, Joseph's words were probably known and they were probably repeated by the Israelites. Hearing them spoken by Moses would bring the extra assurance of a fulfilled prophecy. Words that they could rely on and they could trust in. They weren't just going to trust in the words of Moses, right? But they needed something, and God was giving Moses everything to say to them. Now, we have an identical promise we repeat frequently as we await fulfillment as well, right? The words of Jesus ring often in our ears and in our hearts, especially when times are tough and things are really kind of dark in our, in our day and age right now. Because they were spoken by the same great God, and we have the absolute surety that they'll be filled. Look at John 14, 1 to 2. says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself, that where I am there, you will be, you will be also. Don't those words just inspire perseverance in, in our walks? Don't they just comfort you knowing that God is preparing a place for us even in these uh, darkest times that we're living in. Look at verse 18. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come and you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt. Now, notice that the Lord tells Moses that the elders of Israel will in fact listen to him. They will fall in line. And in this verse, it is the eighth of 14 times the word Hebrew will be used in Exodus more than any other time in the Bible. And in fact, the word is only used 34 times in the Old Testament. So this peculiar designation is used to make a distinction between the Egyptians and the people of God. And at 18 says, Now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. Now, why is this request given? Why is the request, you know, the three-day journey... You know, let, let us have three days. Let us go out into the desert. I mean, it, if I'm going to take a three-day vacation, I'm not going to go to the desert. Sorry, I keep picking on the desert. But, you know, Moses, <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, okay, maybe Palm Springs, right? But, but you know, the three-day journey probably had a twofold reason, all right? The first reason was to get away from the open idolatry that was ongoing in Egypt at the time, of which the Israelites had participated in. Okay, so in the wilderness, there would be purity of worship. It's kind of like, you know, the men just got back from a men's retreat, right? You go up to a mountain, you go, you get away from everything and, you know, you're isolated, but you're not isolated, really, you know? So I think that's the idea here is to get away um, where there was purity of worship. And the second reason is found later in Exodus eight twenty-five to 27. Um, and you guys can read that um, on your leisure here, I just want to point out the last part of verse 27 says where 
We will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So there was a rhyme and a reason why this request was made. And uh, you have to dig a little bit deeper uh, beyond the text to kind of find it. Now look at verse 19. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, nor no, not even by his mighty hand. So God knew that Pharaoh's response, uh, Pharaoh's response ahead of time. You know, nothing surprised him. No way the Egyptians are going to willingly let this huge workforce of Hebrew slaves just go. They're just not going to do it. So why would God instruct Moses to make this request knowing that it was going to be denied? Well, here's, here's the point. The point is that God is looking to reveal where Pharaoh's heart is. He's looking to reveal where the attitude of his heart is. Okay? And we know that Pharaoh's heart would continue to get hard and harder and harder against God and the people of Israel. And we know that eventually, by a mighty hand, Pharaoh did let the people go. However, even after letting the people go, what happened? Pharaoh changed his mind. He chased after Israel. And what happened? Perished in the sea, right? So even then, he was still getting harder and harder. His heart was becoming more and more brittle. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll show that to you after the study. So look at verse 20. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will, and he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, gold, clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Countless times in Exodus, the Lord sends out protection while sending out destruction. And in the case of Egypt, God has said he was going to strike out with all my wonders. That must have been terrifying to witness. Can you imagine these things happening? Um, actually, it depends on where you were sitting, right? If you're the children of Israel, you're okay. But if you're not, this is terrifying. But Moses is given absolute assurance. And after the wonders have been stretched out upon Pharaoh by the hand of God, he will finally relent and he's going to release the people. Okay? And that was the assurance that God was giving uh, Moses. In verse 21 it says, that I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. Now, how is it that the people, after all this time, is going to find favor in the sight of the Egyptians? Well, because in Genesis 15, 14, it was explicitly promised 430 years earlier to Abraham. And says, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So, He's already told them that they were going to come out with these possessions. God, who knows the future, had promised Abraham, and now the promise is reiterated to Moses. Now, this verse, verse 22, the plundering um, of the Egyptians, has come under a lot of criticism um, over the years. People have used terms like 
fraud, theft, deception to describe what actually occurred here. Um, comparisons to this and to modern Jews has been made, implying that this is a trait that kind of permeates their society. But there's nothing inappropriate in this verse. Instead, you know, God has a purpose and a, and a design. And for 215 years, Israel, they dwelt in Egypt. And during their stay, Egypt blossomed and flourished under the authority of Joseph. Israel also grew mighty and prosperous, but eventually they were robbed into poverty and beaten into submission. What was there to show for Joseph's leadership and wisdom was nothing, which literally saved the kingdom. So the plundering of the Egyptians was, in fact, a just reward for Israel's time and labor. The same word is used in 1 Samuel 30.22 to indicate stolen property that was recovered by its rightful owner. So this plundering of Egypt is then, it's just, and it's a just and proper transfer, transfer of wealth to Israel. It was their due. And in this, there is truth which often escapes us because of the times we are afflicted and the many times we're on the losing end of the stick. You know, sometimes we kind of, we feel that way, right? But be certain of this, it hasn't gone unnoticed by God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, the plundering of the Egyptians is nothing short of the, the, repeat, of the uh, Hebrews receiving their just due. So in closing, guys, if you found yourself, if we find ourselves in a situation which you think is unending and hopeless, don't forget that at the end of the book it's written. The final word is amen. Okay, God has the last word. Not the situation or circumstances. God has the last word. And so we have a guarantee in God's word that it's true and that it will come to pass. The Lord has you and I exactly where he wants us. He has a good plan and a purpose for us. And even if a deep ocean lies ahead of us, he can part the waters, lead us through onto dry ground. So we need to follow and trust him and watch the marvelous things that he wants to do for us and for our families and, and for our loved ones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we just come to you in Jesus' name, Lord. We're thankful, Father, for just your story and your account of Moses, Father, how you took a man who was full of pride and arrogance in himself, Father, and brought him to a place of submission lovingly, Father. And Lord, we're just so grateful, Father, that that's how you call unto us, Lord. Father, you tell us that if we call unto you, that you will answer us and you will show us great and mighty things, which we know not. So, Father, tonight I just pray over these men, their families, their loved ones, Lord. Father, their places of employment. Father, their families and their marriages, Lord, and their kids. Lord, that you would just continue just to continue to bless them and, and uh, help them to be fruitful and multiply, Lord. Father, thank you, Father, for just teaching us again that it can be dangerous to be prideful, Lord. It can be dangerous to not trust you or to not keep our eyes fixed on you. So, Father, we just lift this to you now. Thank you again for Moses. Thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. <laughs>